Hi, I'm Stacey Shoemaker-Rowan, Editor-in-Chief of Hospitality Design Magazine with HD's What I've Learned podcast. I sat down with Kimberly Dudell, the former president of the National Organization of Minority Architects, NOMA for short, and principal in the Chicago office at HOK, where she is also co-chair of the firm-wide Diversity Advisory Council. Since she was a child growing up in Detroit, Kimberly saw how the built environment can improve the quality of urban life. It's this worldview that led her to pursue degrees in both public policy and architecture. This summer, amid Black Lives Matter protests and the ongoing COVID pandemic, Noma, with Kimberly at the helm, addressed these twin crises by emphasizing the importance of mentorship, representation, inclusivity, and equity. It's this shift to advocacy and empowering communities that has been a big part of Kimberly's journey. Thanks to her work, she has been able to tap into a reservoir of resilience, she says, that keeps her fighting for another day to do the work that's so important. Hi, I'm here with Kimberly Dowdell. How are you today? Thanks so much for joining us. I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. It's good to be here. So great to have you. So we always start at the beginning. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Detroit, Michigan. Um, so just at a time when Detroit was um, sort of undergoing, you know, a good amount of disinvestment and a lot of challenging things, the 80s and 90s. Um, but, uh, you know, for a long time, Detroit was, you know, one of the stronger uh, cities in the country. And I sort of came around when it was a bit on the decline. And then over the last, let's call it 10 years or so, um, you know, I've been pleased to see Detroit coming back. So it's been known as the Renaissance city for quite a while. And so happy to be from Detroit, but also have spent time um, in many other great cities like New York and DC and Boston and um, now based in Chicago. So I've gotten um, around a little bit, but Detroit is always home. Yes. And did you always have um, a love for design or were you creatively, uh, were you attracted to things that were creative? Talk to us about your early childhood. Yeah, well, I mean, two things come to mind. So one, you know, I, I definitely had and still have a love for the arts. I, you know, have a, a number of, of close family members who are artists. And um, and so that has been part of the story. But then, um, as I mentioned, uh, Detroit uh, is also the other part where, you know, having seen so many amazing buildings, um, you know, that were ghosts of their former selves because of the, the heyday and then getting, um, you know, closed down for one reason or another and just seeing them boarded up. And so uh, there was a very distinct moment when I was 11, when I decided that I wanted to become an architect because I wanted to fix the building. So that's kind of how that all started for me. So the, the combination of, you know, a desire to help improve the built environment around me coupled with my passion for the arts. Before 11, did you want to be something else? Yeah, originally I wanted to be a doctor. Um, and then I, I realized that in a way as an architect, it's almost like I could be a doctor for cities. So that's oh. kind of what I'm going with now. I love that. Was there one building in particular or one moment um, that you remember? Yes. In fact, uh, there's an old department store called Hudson. So the Hudson's department store was an iconic building in downtown Detroit on Woodward Avenue for uh, for decades. Um and uh, it was it was built in the early 1900s and actually closed the year that I was born. Uh, so I never actually experienced it. But, you know, many older Detroiters would say that that's where they went and, um, you know, did a lot of their their shopping for key events or that's where they visited Santa Claus or, you know, all those, you know, kind of key things that department stores represented in the um, 20th century. And um 
I only experienced it as this large building that um, you know, took up a full city block in Detroit, but I never got to go inside. But I just saw it kind of decay in front of my very eyes over the first, you know, um, you know, 10, 12 years of my life, but you know, as I was having this epiphany about architecture. And then unfortunately it was demolished when I was in high school. So I didn't actually get to work on the building, but there was a moment where I was like, I want to fix the Hudson's department store. And I didn't get to do that, but you know, I'm delighted now that that old Hudson's department store site uh, is now slated to become um, you know, a brand new building that's going to be the tallest building in Michigan. I didn't work on it, but uh, also just glad that it's going to become something else. Yeah, no, for sure. And I love how you said it's like being a doctor, right? That you can fix buildings. And because I, you know, and I think especially sitting here in the middle of the pandemic or whatever time of the pandemic, you can see how, I think what it's brought to light is you can see how much buildings affect well-being and human, you know, and just your overall holistic wealth. I mean, is that part of it? Is that what you hope your buildings do and almost create these uh, environments to help people thrive or, you know, live and um, and feel good about where they are? Yeah. In fact, when I was um, just out of college, or actually technically I was still in college, I came up with an idea um, about measuring the the impact of of buildings on um you know kind of on the not just the the client and the client community but also the larger community um and it was actually while i was interning with the general services administration uh so basically the federal government um so back in 2005 uh the idea was to take you know the idea of the lead you know rating system but apply it to more social issues and um basically looking at social economic issues environmental issues. And so basically, um, me and a a small group of people came up with uh, SEED, which is the Social Economic Environmental Design Network. And our mission is to advance the right of every person to live in a socially, economically, environmentally healthy community. Uh, So that's, you know, so that's been, I guess, over 15 years now um, that that has been, you know, part of um, you know, just kind of the the profession, um, you know, a small group of us that, that you know, is continuing to grow. But um, I think in the wake of a lot of what happened uh, last year in particular with the social awakening, there's, there's just a greater call for um, more thoughtfulness around social equity, around, and, you know, certainly climate change and, you know, economics are always going to be a part of the equation. So, and I was excited to be a, a part of kind of the very beginning of, of those conversations back in, in 2005 and around that time. But yeah, I mean, part of what my professional mission um, beyond the SEED mission, which is, you know, a, a separate organization, but me personally, it's about improving the quality of life for people living in cities. And I think that buildings are very much a part of that. I think that public spaces are very much a part of that. And so whatever we can do as, you know, building professionals to um, you know, make healthier environments that are accessible to, you know, to everyone, um, you know, within reason. I think that's, you know, that's really what our, what our goal should be to um, ensure that people can, you know, live their best lives and and be healthy and, you know, have access to the resources they need. Right. So much, to, but first, uh, so much to talk about, but first, yeah. let's, uh, were your parents an influence? What did they, you know, did they influence you at all in any sort of way to help you grow and to this very thoughtful child? <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Well, my father was an artist. And so a lot of, there's a lot of um, artistic ability actually on, on both sides of my family. Um, but I would say that encouragement to, um, to consider the arts was, um, you know, part of uh, his contribution. And my mom uh, has always been, you know, very encouraging of me to pursue education. So uh, between those two things, I think that's, you know, where, where a lot of this is anchored. And to meld these worlds, you have both a policy degree and an architecture degree. How do they inform each other when you're, you know, today? And how did you decide to go that route back then? Yeah, so architecture, as I, as I mentioned, that kind of um, became something I, I was interested in at a very early age, so age 11, let's say. I, I don't think I knew what a policy degree was for, for quite some time. Um, but I did decide to get my Master of Public Administration about... 10 years after graduating from architecture school, mainly because I was, you know, I'd just gotten my license to practice architecture, which was this Herculean effort. And when it was all done, I was like, well, what am I supposed to do now? And so I just kind of did research on different academic programs and um, the master of public administration seemed like a good, um, a good path to take because buildings are very much a part of the public realm. And I just wanted to have a better understanding of how, you know, public policy and, and um, you know, the way uh, governments are, are motiv- motivated by certain, um, certain things to, um, you know, to create uh, development opportunities and incentives and things of that nature. So, so I did that program um, just in an effort to see how that could help me um, be a, you know, be a better architect, be a better advocate for urban development, redevelopment. Um, and, and also, you know, I, um, you know, decided that architecture and development are both uh, important aspects of how I, you know, want to spend my time and career. And so I ultimately, um, after uh, graduate school, um, I worked in city government and I actually helped um, developers uh, work with the city of Detroit at the time. And then I um, went into development uh, for a few years doing small scale work. And then I had an opportunity to come back to uh, HOK, which is uh, a firm where I worked earlier in my career uh, to help lead our Chicago office. So, so it's been, you know, been, a, there have been a lot of different things that have happened, um, you know, over the course of the past few years in particular, but I feel like there's, you know, there's this thread of design and policy that has kind of permeated everything that I've done. For sure. And they, you know, inform each other, right? They're so, so much part of the process. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the first job was with the U.S. General Services Administration, right? Well, technically, my very first internship was with uh, McKissick & McKissick, which is the first uh, Black-owned uh, architecture and engineering company in the country, founded, you know, over 115 years ago at this point. Um, so since it's Black History Month, I guess I would I would just give a shout out to McKissick & McKissick. So that was my very first summer. Um, it was right after my third year of architecture school. Um, and then the next summer I worked for the General Services Administration, and that connection came through. Uh, actually, I shared a cubicle with a woman named Kathy Dixon at McKissick & McKissick. And Kathy Dixon, um, who uh, was a NOMA leader at that point, connected me with another NOMA leader, Steve Lewis, who worked for the General Services Administration. So that was kind of how that connection was made, which is really my first real introduction to NOMA because um, it's an organization that is really about mentorship and and helping connect people with opportunities. So I got to experience that in in real time there. It's amazing. And what did, first, before we go on to NOMA, what did you learn at these two first jobs? What did you take away from them? 
Yeah. Well, the, the very first job with McKissick, um, you know, I learned so much just kind of sitting directly next to Kathy Dixon and asking her every single question under the sun. I appreciate the patience that she had. But one of the things she uh, would always say is, you know, there's always, you know, there's more than one, one way to skin a cat. And so whenever there was a challenge, if I you know ran into an obstacle, she would like, go try it this way or try it that way. So that was, you know, a very you know, good early lesson and just to be, um, you know, to be resilient and to figure out different ways to, to solve certain problems. Um, and then I would say with, with the general services administration, uh, I learned that even if you're, you know, very new to a profession or you're young or, or what have you, you know, you still have ideas that you can contribute. And so I credit Steve Lewis for, uh, for actually encouraging me to flesh out the seed idea because he handed me a magazine article um, in that, that June of, of 2005 in Metropolis Magazine. And it was, uh, the article was entitled The Ethics of Brick by Lance Hosey. And it just sparked this idea that, you know, as architects, we should really be working on the triple bottom line. So social, economic, and environmental issues. And I just learned what the lead rating system was in a college uh, class, the pre, you know, the previous year. And I said, well, we should have something like lead for social issues, we should call it seed. And I, I mean, that was kind of how it all started. And Steve Lewis is like, that's a great idea. And then, you know, it just kind of started this whole movement. And so what I learned from that is no, no matter how much experience you have, like you always, you know, have something to contribute. And so, you know, I, I try to tell younger people now, like, you know, don't be afraid to, to, you know, think about the big, you know, complicated problems in the world and just put out there what you think could work. And who knows, maybe it'll become a thing. Yeah. And ask questions. I love how, you know, I, I always tell people just ask, don't be afraid to ask and learn and take in as much as you can. Exactly. So talk to, talk a little bit about seed and what you've all done with that. How have you grown it? How have you implemented it into projects? Um, and you know, what, how has it evolved from 2005? Yeah, so I was I was pretty heavily involved in the very beginning, and um, you know by 2009 it was uh, officially adopted by Design Corps. So it's actually led by that organization at this point. And I would say, you know, over the years there's been um, you know a focus on creating an evaluator. So it's called the Seed Evaluator um, to to help evaluate uh, projects based on their social, economic, and environmental impacts. And um, there's also um, the Seed Awards Program, uh, which is part of the annual Structures for Inclusion Conference run by Design Corps. So, um, so I mean, so those are some of the things that have uh, evolved out of the Seed Network, and you know, just generally, it's it's been a community of, of people who you know care about these issues and and are supportive of the mission. And we you know we all know each other, and you know can reach out when we're working on a particular issue in a certain area where we, you know, where we know that we can reach out to one of the seedlings, as we call ourselves, to, to get some additional support. So, so my involvement now is, is much more informal. Um, I, I did have an opportunity when I was the NOMA president to uh, help host or co-host the Seed Awards at the NOMA Digital Conference this past year because we had to go digital due to the pandemic. But it was a, a really nice collaboration between NOMA, uh, seed and the NAACP. So that was my uh, latest interaction with um, with seed, but you know, certainly encouraging um, you know all, all the seedlings to keep uh, to keep going with the mission, which again is to uh, advance the right of every person to live in a socially, economically, and environmentally healthy community. 
And then you've mentioned NOMA a couple of times. For those that don't know the organization, um, can you talk a little bit about it and how you got involved? Sure. So NOMA is the National Organization of Minority Architects. It was founded actually 50 years ago this year, uh, 1971, um, at the AIA convention, the American Institute of Architects convention in Detroit, uh, my hometown. So that's especially meaningful to me. Um, And over the last 50 years, the organization has really been focused on advancing uh, diversity in in the field of architecture, um, specifically looking at how to uh, empower and support uh, Black architects, but certainly, you know, all architects of color and, and women who have been underrepresented in, in the profession. So my um, initial introduction to NOMA uh, was was actually as a student uh, because NOMA has had for a very long time an annual student design competition. So schools from all over the country can compete in this, uh, the annual competition and um, get to see how their work stacks up against other uh, architecture schools. And so my first competition was uh, as a college student in 2004. So that's why I went to the conference and um, actually reconnected with Kathy Dixon, who I mentioned earlier, who was really my first introduction to a a NOMA person. And um, so, I mean, that's how it started for me to, you know, one, have this, you know, nice lady kind of like, show me the ropes, uh, you know, in the context of the firm and then see her at this conference with, I mean, I didn't know there were that many black architects. I mean, there's still like actually not a ton, but uh, like to see almost everyone in the same space. I remember we had the the first conference that I went to was, um, you know, in, in Midtown uh, Manhattan. And it was just, it was just like magical to see just all these people like dressed up and, you know, talking about architecture that, you know, many of them own, own their own firms or, you know, we're just doing really great things. So I was inspired just really from the very beginning. And I, you know, I continued to go as a student. And then um, after I graduated, I uh, was actually invited to join the board as a university liaison to help, you know, support students in the Northeast region, because I was living in the Northeast at the time. And so I served on the, the NOMA National Board for four years. So until about 2010, when I decided I need to unplug so I could get, focus on licensure, which was a whole other story. So I did that work. And then I was like, okay, I, I kind of did my, my NOMA duty. And then um, I got a call in 2016 about coming back. Actually, I got a call in 2014 about coming back to support the board. And I, was, I had just started graduate school. So I was just like, no, I cannot do that. But thank you for thinking of me. And then I graduated. Um, and so in 2016, uh, I got a call asking if I would have any interest in serving as the NOMA president. And I had to really think long and hard about that because, I mean, even though I was still connected to the organization, still went to the conferences, it had been a while since I'd been you know, on the board. And also at the time, I was like 33 which was like, you know, very, just very, like most of the NOMA presidents have been in their 40s, 50s, 60s. And so that just seemed like it didn't necessarily add up for me. Right. And it's a big and role. It is, it is <laughs> like to lead a national organization. Um, but the, uh, the then incoming president, Brian Hudson said, you know, it's, it's time for, you know, a, a new voice. And, um, you know, it's also been a while since we had a, a female president. In fact, the last female president was Kathy Dixon. Um, you know, quite some time ago. And so, you know, I took a little time to think about it. And obviously I said yes. And so, uh, so yeah, I'm, I wasn't the youngest uh, president, NOMA president in history. I was actually the second youngest. There was someone in the 80s who was a little bit younger uh, at the time. But 
yeah, so I decided to just take it on and and ask lots of questions and um, you know just see how see how it would go. And I think it I think it went pretty well. What do you think were some of your accomplishments as president there? What you know what were some of the things you were able to achieve while you were there? Yeah, well, um, I think from a quantitative perspective, um, something I'm really proud of, and I, yeah, certainly give credit to the the entire board and, and our staff for making this happen, but we double, more than doubled our membership. So when I started, we had 902 members. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I finished, we had 2,464 members. So, and it was, a, it's a two-year term. Um, and so, you know, just over the course of two years, we you know, had pretty significant growth. Um, and I think we also did very well with fundraising. Um, so I feel good about the fact that we left the organization very strong, um, you know, sort of uh, in a strong fiscal condition. Um, and then also we, for the first time in our history, had the ability and the confidence to have full-time staff members. So when I started, I kind of created this, um, this kind of motley crew of consultants to kind of help me uh, figure out how to how to do things and and expand the capacity of the volunteer board because you know myself and everyone on the board were all volunteers and you know we love the organization but we all you know for the most part all we all have day jobs and so we had to figure out how to grow the organization and ex- expand our impact but also um, you know do do what we have to do for our regular jobs and lives and things of that nature, so I felt it would be important for us to start to hire people and you know for the first time in a, in a long time well perhaps in the in the organization's history, we actually had the available funds to hire people kind of you know on a more consistent basis so over the course of my two years as president, um, you know we just continued to work with our consultants until uh, you know, by basically by the end of my term, so December 2020, uh, I was really proud that we were able to sign uh, not one, not two, but three full-time employees uh, as our first, uh, you know, our first employees. So, uh, you know, with benefits and, you know, all the things that people want in full-time employment. So that was very exciting for the organization. And I mean, a lot of different things happened, but um, I was also really proud of how we responded to, uh, you know, just the, the the racial and social awakening we, um, you know, in re- in response to the murder of George Floyd, we we put out um, a pretty compelling statement about you know what people should be doing, and and I encouraged uh, everyone to be, to be brave, which is an acronym that um, you know that basically. Uh, gives people like specific steps they can take to ensure that, you know, they're being a good human to one another. Like that's kind of what it all comes down to. And at the, you know, that same statement um, provided our new mission statement, which is more focused on not just diversity in the profession, which is important, but um, advocacy and empowering communities to, to help rebuild and and support one another. So, um, so there are a lot of, there've been a lot of different things that, uh, that have happened over the last two years. Um, but among them are membership growth, um, financial strength, um, really messaging to our members, um, you know, what they can and should be doing to, you know, create a stronger uh, pr- profession and, and society. And then also building bridges with other organizations within our profession so that it's not just, you know, NOMA on an island trying to increase diversity, but we really need, you know, the other architecture organizations to chip in as well. So, those are a, f- a few of the things, but uh, it's a pretty long list. I actually was asked to, to put together a list for uh, our 50th anniversary um, 
um, commemorative book, if you will. And I was like, wow, we did a lot. And so I credit, you know, certainly the board, but also uh, our consultants and staff because we couldn't have done it without them. Right. And what was it like to be, you know, leading this organization last year, you know, when everything was going on after George Floyd, Floyd's murder and, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement. I mean, what was, what was your feeling going through all of that and leading this organization? Because I know there was, you know, even for us at HD to start really, you know, everyone realized they should do better and could do better. Um, and having some, you know, those conversations that we always thought we were having, but should be having more of, you know, the question was, you know, a lot of the response was, you know, we've been doing this for a while, you know, like, um, thanks for noticing now, but, you know, was there some of that at that same time of, you know, you know, that you're in charge of this organization that's trying to promote diversity and, you know, get the word out. Um, but just talk to me about being that president at that time. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I certainly don't have to remind you that that was also the same time that, yeah, there's growing uncertainty around the pandemic yep. and then also the um, the kind of uh, economic situation in the country and, you know, frankly, throughout the world. And so we we called it dealing with almost like a triple pandemic. So the racial pandemic, the, the health health crisis, obviously, and, um, you know, so many members were losing jobs and, and things of that nature. So really trying to... Um, address all, all of those things at the same time, which is very challenging. Um, but certainly um, things became much more focused on, on the, um, the racial awakening uh, after the murder of George Floyd. So let's call it June and July were very active in terms of, you know, people reaching out to us saying, how can we help? So, you know, many white Americans would, um, you know, send email, send emails to, to NOMA members or to me directly or, you know, the general inbox or what, ha- or what have you and just say, you know, we want to help, we want to donate, we, you know, what can we do um, to get involved? Because, you know, we've been kind of on the sidelines for a long time and, um, you know, we want to help. And so that, that was actually really refreshing, honestly. I mean, it did generate more, um, you know, more work that we had to do to kind of respond and, and figure out what to, you know, what to actually do to, um, you know, make sure that we were, uh, you know, taking care of all the different, you know, new opportunities that were, uh, that were popping up. But I mean, overall, I felt really positive about the response that we were getting. And I just hope that, you know, it wasn't kind of a flash in the pan kind of thing. And you know, certainly the, the, the volume of, of inbounds has gone down, but I, I hope that, you know, the, the companies that we've been working with and individuals that have reached out, you know, they, they still kind of keep us on their radar and, and remain supportive, you know, this year and next year and and to the future, because, you know, it's not just a one and done kind of thing. It's like, we have to continue to work on, you know, fostering that diversity and inclusion. And in fact, one thing that, um, you know, I was once told, uh, to consider is that, um, diversity and inclusion, if we start to look at it more like profitability, like you don't just like achieve profitability and you're like, all right, I'm done. You know, it's like, you have to keep, you have to keep reviewing, you know, your, your, your numbers and everything, um, you know, pretty regularly. And so I think that if we do something similar for diversity, equity, and inclusion, I think that, um, you know, we'll, we'll all be in a better spot sooner than sooner rather than later. Right. Right. There's so many reasons. Um, and what do you think, the industry can do um, to help create more diversity and inclusion? Are there, you know, any kind of high level things that you have said or in the BRAVE or in your statement that um, uh, the BRAVE acronym or in your statement that you think are, are some of the top 
things to keep in mind, to keep doing, to keep thinking about? Yeah. I mean, I think one of the key things that um, I encourage, particularly leaders of either architectural firms or organizations that, that um, support the profession are look at, uh, look at who's missing from the table. So if you're um, in a boardroom and there aren't any women or people of color, or there's just a perspective that's missing, um, you know, you should actively seek ways to fill, you know, um, fill a seat that represents that missing perspective or that missing voice. Um, and I think that once we all start to do that more often, a lot of the the issues or the, the um, inequities that we see will start to shrink because all of a sudden you have someone who can say, hey, I noticed that um, we're not doing this or we are doing this. Whereas before that voice was at the table, it would just go completely unnoticed. And so I think that's one of the key things that can happen at the very highest levels. Um, but I think in terms of how we sort of fix the um, disparities, at least in, in terms of representation. So I guess to give a very specific example, um, there are about 116,000 licensed architects in the United States. Of that number, only about 2,300 are African-American. So that's, you know, less than 2%. Um, and then of that number, only 500 are women, Black women, and we mostly all know each other. In fact, there are so few of us that we know the number of which we are, you know, when we were licensed. So I'm like number 295, for example. Um, and so my hope is that, you know, years from now, not too long from now, but, you know, some years from now, like, we're not going to keep track of numbers anymore because it'll be like, okay, why are we still doing this, right? But it's going to take a while to get there. And um, a couple of things that we can do to at least start to address those issues is to look at, um, you know, how we're creating access to the profession. So specifically looking at K through 12 education and, you know, how are people getting information about architecture as a, you know, potential career path? Are they seeing people um, who who practice architecture and do at least some of those people look like them just so they can, you know, imagine uh, themselves in, in those positions later on. And then once they decide that architecture school might be for them, you know, how do we get them access to scholarships for uh, for summer programs just so they can experiment and see, you know, how, how it is um, to, to study architecture before they commit. And also uh, many architecture schools almost informally require those pre-summer programs, but they can be very expensive. And so uh, ensuring that students have um, support to, to do those kinds of things is, is also critical. And then once you get to architecture school, um, you know, ensuring that you have the, the, the financial resources to make it through school, because it's actually one of the more expensive things to study because it's either five, six, or seven years of study. And then you have to you know, purchase sort of top-notch technology to run all the programs. And you also have to have, you know, funding for uh, physical models that have to be built and, you know, printing drawings and all kinds of stuff. I mean, it's, it's far more expensive than just buying books, which is what most other uh, um, majors require. So that's, so there are all these kind of economic factors and it's no secret that communities of color just tend to have fewer economic resources. And so that's another reason why, um, you know, architecture isn't always the the top choice. And then that coupled with, um, you know, compensation rates not being as, as high as uh, other other professions um, upon graduation, like the legal profession, the medical profession, and increasingly um, the tech field. So, uh, so we've got a lot of competition in architecture, and I think we have to do a better job of articulating the value proposition. Right. Um, and so from there, and I, I could go on and on about this one topic, so I'll, I'll curve it in just a moment. But 
you know, once people do graduate, they have to like have access to good jobs and be supported in firms and ensure that the, um, you know, the, they see a future for themselves, um, for themselves in the firm where they are, or they see a pathway to owning their own firm and having a sustainable business. So there's so many, so many different things from basically kindergarten through retirement that we have to, as a profession, be able to, uh, to help make sure people have the support that they need. Right. And you didn't even talk about licensing because that's a whole nother. Right. I, okay. Yes. <laughs> thank, thank you for bringing that yep. back into, yeah. So licensure, that's, you know, that's kind of how we get to the 2,300 people. And, and actually Noma, one of the other things I'm actually really proud of is um, creating the 50, 50 by 50 challenge uh, for Noma uh, towards the end of my, my term where we partnered with Black Spectacles, which is a, a test prep uh, company to ensure that, um, you know, as many of our members as possible have access to those uh, seats that they offer that, you know, basically give um, unlimited access to the Black Spectacles uh, exam resources. And so the 50 by 50 challenge is essentially to, uh, so NOMA has this really great tradition where we pin our newly licensed architects. So it's like a pinning ceremony where someone's mentor gets the, you know, the different color NOMA pin because you have a certain color if you're a student or a non-licensed professional and there's a you, know, you get a, a different pen when you get licensed and so everyone's excited about their their pen color changing and so um uh the the goal is to get 50 people pinned in detroit for this year's conference assuming that it happens in person uh which is our 50th year and so 50 by uh, 50 is what we're calling it. And so this Black Spectacles partnership is basically enabling us to give more um, very deeply discounted um, exam study resources to our members uh, because it's, I mean, it's super expensive to go through the licensure process. And so uh, that's one way that we're, we're trying to help. Uh, but yes, definitely. Thank you for reminding yeah, me of that. No worries. <laughs> um, just bringing it all back around. Um, yeah. And then what is the all in for NOMA platform? Yeah, so um, so that was my platform during my presidency. So 2019, 2020, that was, uh, you know, us all being all in for NOMA, meaning uh, it's, a, it's an acronym because I love acronyms. Uh, I know, you're like, it's like <laughs> I a need thing. to like call you when I need acronyms. <laughs> this is amazing. Seed, uh, Brave, <laughs> yeah, all in, yeah. Going. So all in for NOMA stands for Access leadership and legacy. So how do we create access to the profession? So that K through licensure piece in the beginning, and then leadership, how do we foster leadership within uh, our ranks to make sure that people are, you know, best positioned to either open their own firms or, you know, climb the, the ladder at their existing firms or um, get involved in, in boards and, you know, public service, et cetera. And then legacy, how do we, how do we look at ways to support our um, you know, more seasoned members and thinking through things like succession planning so that their firm lives on beyond them. Um, how do we uh, celebrate people's uh, achievements through design awards and, and things of that nature? So, uh, so really it was a way for me to break down the almost like uh, life cycle of an architect, the very beginning, the middle part of the career, and then, you know, towards the end of the career um, in ways that, you know, people could resonate like, oh, you know, I, I want to help create more access or I want to help people, you know, with leadership challenges or I want to help people build legacy. And uh, the other part of All In for Doma is um, you're really signaling that we want all people to be engaged in this work. It's not just about Black architects or architects of color or women architects. It's, you know, we we need 
And we need white architects to also get involved and say, hey, like we're in this together. And so if we're all in Fernoma, then I think we can, um, you know, do a much better job of creating the profession that, um, you know, that's going to be most sustainable and effective for a wider variety of communities. So, so that's actually technically no longer the platform because there's a whole new president and he's got a whole other thing, which I think is also very exciting. But that was, that was my thing. And it was, it was great fun. Love it. Love your acronyms. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, and uh, let's get to HOK for a minute because uh, do you want to talk about your role there? So how yeah. long have you been at HOK? What is your role? What kind of projects have you been working on over the last couple of years? Sure. So my HOK story actually started at a NOMA conference. So there's a nice little bridge there. Um, when I was working in DC, I went to a NOMA conference uh, I worked for a, a smaller firm called Air St. Gross at the time. And Air St. Gross did not have, actually to, to make it tie back again to Noma, Steve Lewis, who I mentioned, his roommate in college was Adam Gross of Air St. Gross. And he, he made that connection. So then I started to work with Air, with Air St. Gross or ASG. And it was a great firm, had a great time, but they only had you know offices um, in certain areas and New York was not one of them. But because I went to college in upstate New York and most of my friends were in New York City, I was visiting New York a lot. And my friends were like, why don't you just move here? And I didn't really have a good reason as to why not. And so I just started to think about, well, which firm might I switch to to get to New York? And so I went to a NOMA conference and there was a gentleman there who uh, worked at HOK in the Atlanta office actually at the time. And he was like, why don't you come to HOK, interview in Atlanta and interview in New York and just see what happens. And so Long story short, I um, did those interviews and I got an offer from the New York office in 2008, which was great timing, I would say. Um, <laughs> right. But the it, industry was flourishing. Was exactly. Well, I mean, it was actually before everything okay. went haywire. But yeah. I, yeah, I arrived in New York in April of 2008. Yeah. And then in September, it was a very different world. But, um, but luckily, I was, you know, um, yeah, I was able to kind of uh, stick through that whole stormy time. And um, I ended up leaving HOK in 2011 to do real estate project management. So I got to kind of sit on the owner's rep side for a while, which was really great experience. And I think, you know, helps to inform, you know, my, my work now back on the architect side. But, um, you know, I started out as a, you know, as a young designer, architectural technician was the technical title back then. And I, you know, I really got interested in marketing. Um, in fact, it, you know, the acronyms is just part of it, but it's just like, I have this, you know, I have this, um, you know, real interest in, I guess, some level of talent with thinking of ways to, um, you know, express things in a way that's very easily digestible. And, right. um, you know, that's part of what marketing is. And in any case, long story short, um, uh, I became pretty good friends with the marketing principal in the New York office who kind of took me under his wing and and just kind of, you know, essentially offered me an opportunity to work with him directly. Um, so pulling out, uh, you know, pulling away from architecture a little bit, but you know, obviously still in the context of, of HOK supporting our um, marketing and communications efforts in the New York office. So, um, and so through the years, I remain in touch with, um, you know, with, with my former boss there, uh, his name is Chris Lal. And, um, and so years later, I remember having a conversation with Chris about supporting, uh, about HOK supporting NOMA, which he, you know, certainly uh, was, was um, in favor of. And so he went back to the, um, to the 
leadership of, of HOK and, and they decided to support NOMA in a pretty major way, which was amazing because as I was stepping into the presidency, it was good to kind of have this, um, this high level of support from a major firm. And in those conversations, we were just talking about, you know, what I was doing with my career and, you know, what some of the potential needs were within HOK. And um, long story short, again, I ended up, um, you know, having an opportunity to uh, consider a position with HOK in Chicago. And Chicago is a city that I've always admired, but it, yeah, I'd never lived there. And what's nice about it is it's you know pretty close to home in, in Detroit, but it's also like an amazing city for architecture and it has so many amazing um, qualities. So I moved to, to Chicago in April of 2019. And so that was my triumphant return to HOK, which is exciting. I was um, uh, uh, coming in as director of business development, um, you know, really in an effort to ensure that the uh, Chicago studio was, um, you know, ra- you know, raising our profile in the Chicago marketplace, but also helping to bring in new projects to help, you know, grow, grow our practice. So uh, still working on that to this day. And um, you know, I've been very appreciative of HOK support of my role with NOMA because I, I frankly could not have um, accomplished as much as I did as an OMA president if it weren't for HOK support. So, um, you know, they're just very, very vocal about how important it was that I, you know, put NOMA first when, you know, when I needed to kind of make a choice and, you know, HOK will certainly be around when my presidency is over. So I can always kind of make up for it on the back end. And so here we are on the back end now, and I'm, you know, primarily focused on my work with HOK, um, but still on the NOMA board as the immediate past president. And so I'm, I'm in that position for the next two years and, you know, just kind of providing, um, you know, advice and, and um, you know, some level of support to the existing, um, you know, the current president and the, uh, the, the board. So that's, you know, that's what I've been up to over the last 31 days post my NOMA presidency. So just getting involved, getting into it. And- what kind of projects would you like to see HOK take on, especially with your new role? And also, how are you helping to create, um, you know, create a culture that's, di- you know, diverse and inclusive, you know, and all the things that you've been striving to do at NOMA within HOK? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great question. Uh, I think in terms of the types of projects that I want to bring into the office or help help my team bring in are, you know, really a wide variety of large-scale transformative projects. And I don't want to get too specific because I think we're pretty open to anything that's large and complex and and impactful. Um, you know, we, uh, we're a very, uh, we're very focused on sustainable design. In fact, in the 90s, uh, HOK issued the HOK guidebook to sustainable design before most firms, you know, really knew what that was about. And so we're, we're building upon that legacy and we have great leadership on the sustainability front. And I think, a another iteration of that is, uh, our renewed focus on adaptive reuse. And so helping to, to look at our existing building stock, like those buildings, like the Hudson's apartment store that I never got to work on, but, you know, some of those buildings still exist, maybe not at that scale, but, um, you know, how can we repurpose these existing buildings and, um, you know, ensure that they have a, a future because there's a saying that the most sustainable building is the one that, that already exists. And so how do we take some of that existing building stock? And certainly looking at, you know, new ground up development is, is exciting as well. But, um, you know, really looking at, at a wide variety is, is going to be important to us. And then on the, um, 
along the lines of, you know, how my NOMA work is is kind of dovetailing with the HOK work, I'm one of the three co-chairs of HOK's Diversity Advisory Council, which has been around um, for about eight years at this point. Um, and essentially, each of our 23 offices have representatives who are part of the Diversity Advisory Council. And then firm-wide, we have three co-chairs, myself, Shiva Mendez, and Damon Shepard. And we're all in different office locations. And we all have different leadership roles within the firm. But we come together to help lead this, this, this group of people to essentially talk about what's happening in each of our offices and what's happening firm-wide uh, to ensure that we're collectively helping to foster a sense of belonging at HOK. So, you know, anyone who works with the firm feels like there's a place for them. And if there are challenges or issues that come up, we we kind of deal with that as a, as a small group um, and work closely with our HR director to, to make sure that, um, you know, we are uh, being inclusive and, you know, um, facilitating diversity, equity, and inclusion programming that, that helps, you know, everyone, um, you know, strengthen their their approach to those things. So, for example, we uh, have a career and opportunity survey that comes out every other year, um, surveys the whole firm, and then we look at the survey results and we uh, talk to each individual office or the the leadership of each office to to talk about you know what they're doing well and and what their employees saying are are not going as well and how do we address those issues um another thing we we've done more recently is uh, instituted unconscious bias training um you know to ensure that you know people are are able to to get some of that stuff under control so that we can make sure that everyone feels welcome at HOK and another initiative that I'm really excited about is uh, a new program called HOK Tapestry which we're actually planning to roll out this week. Um, so that's what I'll be doing as, as soon as we're, we're done here. But um, Tapestry is sort of a, a two-part approach to uh, ensuring that HOK is, is being a strong partner for, um, you know, for our uh, consultants and, and, and project partners. So for, so for example, um, you know, especially the MBE, WB, uh, you know, DBE. So for, for those who don't know those acronyms, which I did not make these up, by the way, <laughs> it's a uh, minority business enterprise, women owned business enterprise, disadvantaged business enterprise. And there are some, you know, many others, but essentially how can we create diversity within the project teams that deliver on behalf of our projects or on behalf of our clients, I should say. So, um, so there's a, a database that we are launching that um, enables us to, to collect information about all these different um, types of companies, large and small, but um, they can designate what special um, sort of certifications they have. So we can very easily search. Uh, so no matter what location we're in, um, looking for project partners, uh, we can see who's there and we can, uh, and it, because they've signed up or you know, opted into our tapestry program, uh, essentially we can you know, do a smart search for, uh, for those companies and, you know, put together teams that will help us to, um, you know, diversify the the group in which uh, are, are serving a particular client for a particular project. And then the other component of HOK Tapestry is uh, creating programming specifically to help build capacity, whether it's, you know, workshop in risk management or, you know, just helping smaller firms uh, overcome some of the obstacles that we often see them struggle with as you know HOK has been around since 1955 so we've kind of seen a lot of different things and and can give some advice and you know certainly not unsolicited advice but you know we'll have um you know specific uh seminars and workshops set up to you know again empower more of our project partners so that again as a collective team we can be um 
you know, more solutions oriented uh, for our clients. I love that. Cause as you talked about, like who's sitting at the boardroom, like who, or who's sitting at the table. Right. And it goes so much further than just that. Right. And like, who are the manufacturers? Who are the project managers? Who are the, you know, who are the, every facet of a right. team. So I love that, that it digs, digs even deeper than just, you know, the, the obvious, if that makes right. sense. Yeah. Um, that's amazing. Is that something you're sharing with the industry? Because <laughs> I think that's what the industry needs too, is yeah, you know, to have these resources. We're we're building it right now. So okay. it's still it's still a work in progress, but we're super excited that you know we're gonna start to invite different companies and you know, again, large and small f- uh, firms or other um, consultants that we work with, uh, whether they're owned by minorities or women or 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 not. Um, you know, we want everyone to be in the system uh, so that we can you know, just see who's out there, even though I think we know, like in the back of our minds, we know who we tend to work with, but what the system is looking to do is look a little bit beyond who we have existing comfort with, comfort with and, um, and see who's, who else is out there so that we can start to grow the pool of people that we work with and diversify that pool as well. So, um, we're excited about it. I think that, um, other firms will probably start to look at similar things since that's how this works, but, uh, we're glad to be kind of at the forefront of that. You know, I, I love how part of this is to make sure that people within HOK, you know, feel supported. And I think that, you know, um, we started a hospitality diversity action council. Um, and I think part of a lot of the conversations we're having is, um, you know, making sure that they, that there's mentors there, you know, they see themselves in the roles, um, right. who have been some of your, I know you've mentioned a few mentors, but have there been any other, uh, mentors along the way that have really helped shape, you know, help shape your career, or helping you get to where you wanted to be? Yeah. Um, so I, be- I believe in this, uh, thing I like to call 360 mentorship. And so certainly there are people who are, are, you know, more, um, experienced than, than, than I am. And I get lots of great advice from them. So the Kathy Dixons and Steve Lewis and Chris Walls of the world. Um, uh, but then there are also people who are younger than me who, you know, they, they asked me, like, I'm technically their mentor, but then I, you know, make an effort to ask them questions as well, as well, because there are things that they know that, um, you know, I, I have maybe not caught up on in terms of, you know, other like technology and stuff like that. Uh, although I do try to stay on top of those things, but you know, the point is, it's like, you know, seeing, um, a wider variety of people as, as mentors and people, and even the people who I mentioned as mentors to me, you know, sometimes they'll ask for my input on things. So really just trying to be, um, you know, very open-minded about what mentorship is. Um, so, I mean, there's so many people within NOMA with, uh, throughout HOK and previous jobs that I consider as mentors. So I feel like if I start to name more names, I might get in trouble, but, um, but I, I, I see a lot of people, um, kind of in that position because I have a sort of expanded, uh, notion of what mentorship is and what it can be. So I'll leave it at that. So I don't get in trouble. (laughs) I do know too, one interview we did with you, um, you did talk about Sheila Johnson and, uh, yeah. cause okay. where, you were at the see, Kennedy school, right? Right. You're so good at this. So thank you. So Sheila Johnson, um, uh, so she sponsored this, uh, this fellowship called the Sheila C. Johnson Leadership Fellowship. And those of us who did the fellowship, uh, we call her Mama J just for fun because it's like she paid for us to go to school. Like she sponsored uh, our education. And what's really great about the, the fellowship is that, you know, she 
was very intentional about curating this group of people who had, you know, expertise in different things. So I'm the only architect in the group, um, but we had, you know, multiple lawyers and doctors and public health officials and educators and, you know, you name it, um, people in finance, people in technology. And, you know, the intent of the fellowship was to um, help address disparities in communities of color. And so by empowering people through, you know, getting this, this degree at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government um, and, you know, essentially putting them together, I think that was a brilliant idea. And I certainly appreciate the, you know, the fellowship support to actually um, be able to afford the education. But yes, definitely Sheila C. Johnson is a, is a for sure, major mentor of mine. And, you know, we keep in touch to this day. And I mean, she's just built this incredible empire. She's one of the, um, you know, the only black women billionaires in, you know, in the world. And not that it's about the money, but it's just like, it takes a a lot to get to that point. And the fact that she's so generous and so thoughtful about how she can give back uh, to, you know, to communities that, um, you know, that have historically been, uh, you know, underinvested in. I think that's an amazing thing. So definitely appreciate Sheila C. Johnson and thank you for uh, for bringing that up, especially because, um, you know, she has this uh, incredible hospitality business, which I guess is obviously a major <laughs> link here. Um, but I remember visiting her Salamander Resort in uh, in Virginia and, you know, she has other properties as well. But, uh, and also I, I went to uh, her property in New Orleans. And I mean, it's just, it's just amazing to see because there are not many Black women who are in a position to to have these, these kinds of, um, you know, empires, if you will. And so uh, just really proud of the work that she's done and excited to be a part of that legacy. And I know we touched about on this a bit and you just mentioned it, um, but I think this could be a nice transition as we get to the end of our talk. Um, but how can design and architecture help build these more inclusive communities? You know, that's a, that's a great question. I think that um, a major aspect of building more just and equitable and inclusive communities includes having uh, developers and designers and other key stakeholders that are of that community. And so, you know, why I think that developers and designers and stakeholders, you know, should be of of all different varieties. Um, and so it's not like there should be less of another, but I think there should be more people of color in those positions, especially when we're talking about um communities of color. And so by empowering more developers to uh, to to get involved and to actually have real access to capital, like that's that's going to be a game changer because then they'll probably more naturally uh, hire a more diverse team of consultants, including architects and engineers. And, you know, the contractors would also probably be more diverse, which would uh, actually give money back to those communities through you know, ideally workforce development programs and and other things that that are more thoughtful around, you know, how do we keep as much money in this community as possible while building it up and creating more opportunity for uh, other people to come in, but also to not displace the people who are there. And, it, you know, it takes, it's a balancing act, but I think those things can be done with diverse and, um, you know, really thoughtful, creative teams that are focused on almost like a, like, a, like a project uh, or development mission statement that's around, that's, you know, around, um, you know, avoiding displacement or um, creating job opportunities or, you know, being diverse. Like, I think that when those things are called out as important and, um, and those things are followed up on and, and there's accountability. So, 
by empowering community members to get involved. I think that's one important thing. And then um, to the extent that the public sector is involved, which is pretty much almost always, especially when public funding is involved, um, you know, making sure that the the public leaders are tuned into what's happening and, and making sure that their constituents are um, are being well served and, you know, essentially holding uh, the the leadership of the project accountable for what, you know, doing what they said they would do. So you know, I guess to simplify it, you know, really check in with the community to see what's important to them. Um, you know, obviously the client or the developer, the owner, they have certain objectives they need to, uh, to meet, particularly from a financial perspective. So obviously those things must be met. And then, um, you know, essentially ensure that the promises that are made are kept throughout the duration of the project. Uh, so that at the end of the day, everyone feels like they've they've gotten what they you know set out to get. Whether it's you know a more um, equitable community or more diversity on the team or more you know open space or a profitable project, it's you know it's possible to get a lot of things accomplished within a project with intentionality and you know just uh, careful um, you know management of expectations and things of that nature. Has there been one project that you've seen throughout your career or been involved in that you think really showcases this? Um, I mean, I feel like there, there's so many different projects I've been involved in. It's hard to pick just one to highlight, but I, I guess if I were to pick one um, as a, not as an architect, but as a project manager. So when I um, was an ownership for a while in New York, uh, the company got uh, a contract with uh, the military park uh, project in Newark, New Jersey. So uh, very close to, uh, well, is, is right in the heart of downtown Newark, New Jersey. And it's a triangular shaped park called Military Park. And it had this, or it still has this iconic um, statue with like, uh, you know, there's like a sword flower bed. It's like, I mean, it's it's uh, kind of a, a cool looking dynamic park that uh, for years had been, um, you know, sort of, uh, seen as someone of a, a place where you wouldn't want to spend time because it was, you know, wasn't well lit. There were, uh, there was like drug activity for a while. And so basically, um, you know, a group of people got together and created a public, par- a public private partnership to um, establish funding to actually pr- you know, provide programming for the park to, uh, you know, provide lighting, security, to build um, comfort stations so that people could, you know, use the facilities, you know, if they're spending time in the park. Um, and then uh, also there was like a little restaurant pavilion that was created as well as, you know, seating and, and you know, all kinds of things that really activate a public space. And um, to see that transformation happen over the course of several years, uh, that was pretty magical, especially to see, you know, the community input and to see how the different public-private partnership um, components came together to solve to solve these problems. So, I think that's probably one of my favorite stories that almost anyone can experience because you can easily just kind of go to a park and check it out. Whereas if I'm talking about a building, you have to, you know, be able to see the inside, which is not always accessible. So uh, I love public um, public parks because, you know, they really are kind of like the lungs for our cities. And, you know, when they're truly a, a strong amenity, it, it improves everything around it. Right, right. Love it. And how do you, through everything in the last 11 months, you know, how are you, how have you stayed inspired or where do you find inspiration in these days? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I I mean, I have to say that, um, yeah, I I talked about 
the contributions of my parents earlier in um, in our talk, but you know, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention my grandmother, who I spent a lot of time with as a kid. And you know, she was a woman of faith, and you know, she's um, passed on at this point. But she really, um, you know, instilled upon me this uh, foundation in faith. And so I think when things got really, really difficult. Um, you know, just kind of having that anchor, like every day, kind of like, you know, reading my Bible and just, you know, meditating more and just kind of centering myself has been really important. Cause I mean, a lot of crazy stuff has been happening for, for everyone, but I think especially when, you know, there's so much like death around, you know, like particularly in, in the black community, I, I think it's no secret that black and brown communities have been, you know, uh, ravaged by the cor- coronavirus more than, than others. And so certainly that's hit very close to home. Um, and then also leading a, a national organization with amongst you know these uh, multiple uh, crises that are that are happening. You know it was it was tough, and so I would say that that foundation has been uh, important. And then in terms of inspiration, which I consider that to be part, um, I think just you know working with my colleagues every day, both on the HOK front and the Noma front, and just seeing their resilience. And so we kind of build off of each other and. Um, you know, those, those have been the, the people that I see mostly on my, you know, Zoom screen, if you will, because going outside is no longer a thing, but, um, but, you know, also just talking to, to different family members and, you know, just, uh, seeing everyone else staying strong. And, um, you know, I, I think those are the things that have been important and certainly having my, my binge watching sessions on, on Netflix and, and whatnot. So just try to, try to mix it up a little bit. Yeah, exactly. We always end uh, this podcast with the title of the podcast. So what has been your greatest lesson or lessons learned along the way? I would say my greatest lesson along the way has been about, um, you know, finding your voice and being resilient. I think that uh, particularly uh, looking at my NOMA presidency, I had to really find my voice to um, speak on behalf of a, a whole organization and, you know, to help build bridges between NOMA and other organizations and, you know, help raise money and, and all this stuff. I had to, you know, stand for something. I had to really, like, articulate what, you know, what NOMA was about, what I'm about as, a, you know, as an architect and as a leader and get other people on board. So I think a big part of my journey, particularly over the last few years, has been about finding that voice and, um, and, and tapping into a kind of reservoir of, of resilience to, uh, you know, to keep, to keep fighting for another day to, um, you know, to, to do the work that's so important. Well, I commend you because it's been a very challenging year for many reasons. And, um, Uh, all that you've done has just been remarkable. So thank you so much for sitting down with me today. It's been such an honor and um, hopefully we'll get to see each other in real life. Yes, that would be amazing. Sooner rather than later. Absolutely. Thanks for listening to Hospitality Designs, What I've Learned. If you like what you've heard, subscribe and review us on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find full episodes and transcripts at hospitalitydesign.com.